All right, and we are back once again for another edition of our podcast. And in this episode, we're going to continue what we were discussing before. We're looking at different eschatological perspectives on the end of time, on the millennium, and on things like that. And I'm really excited for the guest that we have today. He's not a person that I was overtly familiar with, Kevin, until you introduced me to him. And we're really, really happy that he has taken time out of his schedule to join us for this discussion today. Yeah, today we have Wes McAdams joining us. So we are excited about that. Uh, Wes and I connected probably just over the last few months or so. I was familiar with Wes and we had connected previously. In fact, one of the reasons why I'd reach back out to Wes is I was apologizing to him because of the way that I had treated him in a discourse which I have to do a lot of apologizing for my past. We've, we've talked a lot about that, uh, you know, of, of how I used to handle people. And so um, someone had actually brought to my attention Wes's view on the end times and how they really thought it was interesting. And so I wanted to reach out to Wes just to reconnect with him. And he was gracious enough to forgive me of my old stu- stupidity my old stupid ways of handling people, of being mean and ugly and a, a jerk for Jesus, a, a phrase that I've now coined. And so we've been able to reconnect. And Wes, it's just great to have you on our show today. Uh, I appreciate you guys having me. I've been I've been listening to the podcast for the last few weeks, and I really appreciate what you guys are doing. And and trust me, there's enough apologizing that I need to do on, on my part too. So uh, there's we all, we all can look back at uh, things that we used to believe or things that we used to say or things that we've done. And, and man, uh, there's uh, plenty, plenty of grace needed for all of us. So I appreciate yeah, man, not only your, your graciousness, but, but also you guys having me today. Well, brother, well, that is the truth. We could always stand to lean into that grace a little bit harder. Well, so, and, Kevin, and what, sorry about that. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say one thing about Wes that I appreciate and I know others appreciate as well is Wes has always been very kind in the way he has he has spoken to others. And Wes has always been uh, very courteous in the way that he has discussed opposing views. Uh, If you look at his articles, even some of his older articles on things I know he probably doesn't agree with anymore, but if you look at the way he writes, uh, Wes is just a really good example of how to discuss subjects in a a very cordial, nice, Christ-like way. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to have him on, because I, I, Wes, I've always appreciated that about you. I believe that you, you're honest. Uh, the more I discuss with you, the more I get to know about you. And I'm just just really happy and thrilled that you decided to come on here. And I'm, I'm thankful that you accepted our invitation. If you will, give us just a couple minute overview of, of who you are, what you do. We've talked about our relationship a little bit, but um, you know where you preach at, just what you do, your background a little bit, if you will. Cool. Yeah, I preach uh, for the Church of Christ on McDermott Road in Plano, Texas, uh, North Dallas area. And um, I've been here for about four years now. And um, I I also blog at radicallychristian.com. And so I've had a podcast and a blog for for probably a decade now. And uh, so as you said, Kevin, uh, some of my older views and things that I've shifted my position on, you know, have been out there for a long time. So my uh, my changes and my growth, hopefully growth, uh, moving in the right direction has been uh, sort of in the in the public view for, for quite a while. But um, thankful that the Lord has uh, allowed me to be part of uh, what he's he's doing in the world and online. And uh, so, yeah, so preach a little bit and, and blog a little bit and podcast a little bit. 
Man, that's awesome. So you're a you're a veteran at this podcasting thing. Me and Kevin, we're just neophytes here, just getting this thing going. Hopefully, we can be uh, um, still doing this in another ten years. That'd be pretty cool to to have all of this look back upon and reflect upon. And I, I think it's really cool. You're there in Plano, and you said on McDermott Road. Um, whenever I was in school, we lived in Dallas. We lived in the North Irving area around just north of Las Colinas, north of 635. And we worshiped at a little congregation in Allen, which I'm, if you've listened to the podcast and you're familiar that that I have been a part of the One Cup branch yeah. of the Churches of Christ. Yeah. And we, we love the congregation there. We love the people there. But I think that... If it's if you are preaching at the same place and I'm thinking you're preaching at, I think that we drove by y'all's place uh, whenever we would go to church there in Allen. So it's really cool to see that you're just really not too far away from where where we live even now in southern Oklahoma. So that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, maybe we can meet meet face to face one of these days. Yeah, that'd be awesome. But today, what we're going to be discussing is is we're going to continue the conversation that we started on the concept of eschatology. And for our listeners who may not be aware of that term and what that term means, eschatology is the study of the end times. It's a study of how things are going to come to pass. And in that, there are a multitude of different perspectives and theological views out there. You have those that are premillennial, which tends to be the, the dominant perspective within evangelical circles. There's also amillennialism, which tends to be the predominant perspective within the churches of Christ. There's also a postmillennial viewpoint that uh, Alexander Campbell held to, and I think Thomas Campbell held to that as well, if we look back into the history of the churches of Christ. But then there's also the idea of preterism, which we interviewed um, a brother not too long ago on that topic. And today, Wes, you're going to be presenting another eschatological viewpoint related to the end times. And that is the idea of the new heaven and new earth eschatology. So would, if we'll just go ahead and just jump right into it. How would you begin to break that down? What, how would you summarize that and explain that perspective to someone who's maybe never heard of it before? Yeah, and and it's interesting how it there's there's definitely overlaps between the things that you've already laid out with eschatology. You know, I would I would say that that I'm definitely an amillennialist. You know, I believe that that we are living in the the reign of Jesus now. That Jesus that there's not a literal one thousand years, but that that since the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, that we've been in the millennium um, right now. And so I, I would definitely still hold to that idea. Um, I like the term um, inaugurated eschatology, that, um, that it's the, the kingdom of God is something that has already begun. It's already been inaugurated, uh, but hasn't reached its fulfillment and its fullness. And so it's that fullness and that fulfillment, like what do we believe will happen when Jesus comes again, where, you know, there might be some, some differences of opinion, you know, especially within Churches of Christ. And you mentioned the Campbells. Um, even though their eschatology was kind of post-millennial, um, they also held to um, a future hope for creation. And that's something that, for me, has been a recent development in my theology, that the creation itself will be redeemed. I grew up believing that the, the creation was destined for annihilation, that when Jesus comes, um, that the, the entire cosmos and all created things would be destroyed and we would live in sort of disembodied uh, bodies or that we would be disembodied spirits for eternity living in heaven. 
but I've come to the understanding that uh, that the creation itself will be redeemed, that heaven and earth will be united. So that's sort of the the way I would sum it up is that the the creation will be redeemed at the Lord's coming, um, and the way Peter puts it in Second Peter three is that we'll inherit a new heavens and a new earth. Well, so, and, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh no. So I was just going to say. So this is interesting because last week we had Daniel Rogers on to talk about preterism, and this is really the complete opposite view of of what Daniel talked about. Because you know, preterism is that all things have already been fulfilled, and uh, everything is a lot more spiritualized in his position. And this is a really a physical position, right? Yeah. This is a, a, a completely different understanding. And, and it's important for our audience to know that, you know, different Christians can hold different positions and still be children of God. And that's why we're having this show. So people can, I'm not going to say have options, but, uh, but so they can have options to, to see that there are different views out there and not just so people can pick and choose whatever they want to believe, but to see that people have always understood scripture differently and still do today. And we have to, as, as Paul would say in Philippians 2, work out our own salvation. And that, that involves us coming to our own conclusions. And if, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that this, the new heavens and new earth, this is really gaining a lot of traction, uh, specifically in the churches of Christ. I know uh, one of my best friends, Brandon Johnson, he uh, preached a series on this not too long ago um, where we attended, where we were able to, to hear, and he did a great job on this topic. And And I find this just very interesting because, you know, when people hear new heavens and new earth, and, and I'll ask you, have you ever been accused of just being a person who follows Je the Jehovah's Witness doctrine, <laughs> the Jehovah Witness doctrine? You're just right. someone, you're just a false heretical teacher now who's nothing more sure. than a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely the accusation that gets thrown out. It's funny. It's interesting how many of the restoration leaders held to this position. Again, I would differ with them on the millennial views because a lot of them were post-millennial. Um, where I would be more amillennial, but uh, people like Moses Lard, um, David Lipscomb, uh, Alexander Campbell, all held to the redemption of creation. So you're right that that uh, this is becoming more popular within Churches of Christ now, but I would say there's actually been a, a restoration, uh, to, to use the phrase, uh, there's a, a restoration <laughs> of this eschatology within restoration movement, within the restoration movement, um, because it really is a very old, um, understanding uh, even within the restoration movement. And, and for many years, it's kind of gone away uh, or been very few people held to this position, but um, it's definitely gaining a lot of traction uh, within Churches of Christ and, and also obviously without on the outside of Churches of Christ as well. Well, I was, I was well, joking with Oh, go ahead, brother. I was just going to say, I was joking with Lee beforehand how, you know, last week we went from uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus to this week a Jehovah's Witness. And so, you know, it's <laughs> not really. But, uh, you know, Lee and I said that's probably going to be some of the accusations. And so, uh, but this this whole idea of the creation will be restored and the creation will be redeemed. I know I grew up believing that at the Lord's return, everything will be destroyed as well. So that's quite a, quite a, a different direction to say that the the earth is going to remain and that the earth is going to be redeemed and that the earth is is going to still be in existence. And so uh, I didn't know, Lee, if you wanted, before I kind of ask another leading question, but do you have something you were going to say? 
Yeah, I would. I was wondering if I could. I could ask a favor of you, Wes. We have you and I have both used the term premillennial and postmillennial and amillennial. Some of our listeners may have not ever heard those terms before. Would you mind just giving just a real quick and easy breakdown of those terms and what those mean for our audience? Yeah. So my understanding, premillennial, uh, and and. and Obviously, the millennial refers to the thousand-year reign of Jesus that that John mentions in Revelation, and so post-millennial people believe that things will get better until Jesus comes, and that that as the the kingdom is restored, then then Jesus will come at the end of of that of that time. Uh, premillennial people believe that, and a lot of that goes along with rapture theology that there will be. Um, some sort of a rapture that the, God's people will all be taken up from the earth, and then there'll be tribulation, and then and then the thousand years, and then amillennial people believe that, uh, like myself and most people within churches of Christ, believe that uh, the millennial reign of Jesus is a figurative number that Jesus is currently reigning. Um, and that this right now is the thousand years, even though it's been 2000 years of this reign, that, that it's a figurative number that just refers to a long period of time in which Jesus um, is reigning as, as king. And then within those different designations, there are different nuanced viewpoints of what exactly that reign looks like and when the right. end of all time comes, how that's going to be presented. And as we got into preterism, the idea is, is that all of those um, prophecies have already been fulfilled. The you know the temple being destroyed there in Jerusalem in AD seventy is that coincided with the return of Christ, and then there's also the the new heavens and new earth, or um, as as you referred to it, the um, oh, what was the term that you used for that? The redemption of creation. Yeah, the redemption or, of creation. Yeah. Yeah, so so that those ideas exist as subsets within some of these premillennial and postmillennial and amillennial viewpoints. So, with that being said, Kevin, go ahead and lead away. What was that next question that you were wanting to ask, brother? Well, just getting back to Wes, what you were saying about the whole idea of the creation will be redeemed at the Lord's coming. So, just give a little explanation. Uh, as as we said before we started recording, uh, just assume that people who are listening this may be the first time that they've ever heard of this, and so just give an overview of what exactly you mean by that, how the, how not just we as children of God will be redeemed, but also the earth itself. Yeah, that's a great question. And I wouldn't blame anybody for thinking that sounds incredibly radical or, or far out, because that's exactly was my, my impression, my reaction the first time I heard that. I, I remember somebody, it was, it was online, it was social media, uh, where somebody I, I said something about the destruction of of the the universe, the, the cosmos, and uh, somebody corrected me and said, actually, you know, the creation will be redeemed. And I thought, well, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. And and I, I started to try to figure out where are they coming from? Why do they believe that? And as that seed was planted in my mind, the more I read scripture, the more it really began to make sense. And it, it really um, was a, a seed that had been planted. And what really solidified it in my mind was uh, a journey. I just actually finished writing a book uh, that, that sort of chronicled my journey through scripture um, in a way that I hadn't read through the entirety of the Bible before. I had read through the whole Bible before, but never one book at a time, one book in a sitting. 
Um, so I would I would sit down um, and and I could do this because I'm a preacher. So I had the time where I could sit down. And, <laughs> in one we make setting. fun. We make fun of preachers all the time. So right, no, it's good. Right, man. That's all right. Uh, but but I could sit down and read through Genesis in one sitting, and sit down and read through Exodus in one sitting. And so I did that with each book of the Bible, with the exception being Psalms. Um, but I, I sat down and read through each book. And then just wrote down my thoughts as I as I finished reading each book of the Bible, and then sort of looked at the entire narrative from beginning to end. And the more that I did that, the more I realized that one of the primary characters, and I mean that very much um, the way that it sounds, one of the primary characters of Scripture is the earth, the land, uh, the the creation itself is one of the primary characters from the very beginning of the story to the very end of the story. The earth is part of it, and and the earth is even personified throughout Scripture uh, as as needing redemption. Um, and it, it really this this idea is really spelled out in Romans chapter eight. And Romans eight really just describes exactly what the way I would. I would describe it, um, and I can. If, if you guys want to get into that, we can get into Romans eight. But that's that's probably the most specific passage that describes what we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead and dig into it. In. Yeah, okay, let's do so, it. So yeah. So in Romans eight, Paul is talking about first the spirit that's given to um, to God's people, given to Christians, and and he says that all who are led. This is verse fourteen of Romans eight. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So that's one of the, the main things first to recognize is that he's talking about Christians as children of God. And we're children of God because the Spirit dwells within us. And he says, and if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he says that we're going through suffering right now, but that we have the spirit already as a, as a down payment, as a pledge that we will be redeemed, that we will be here he says glorified, that we will be glorified with Christ. And then he says in verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now we kind of have to stop right there and say, well, what does he mean by the creation? Now some have taken that and say, well, that means that means creatures like other people. And and if that's what he means, then he's talking about the sons of God and other people. That's obviously not the way that the translators, at least of the English Standard Version that I'm reading from, took it. They took it to mean very much the way that it says, the creation itself. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the sons of God to become what they're, they're destined to be, for the sons of God to be glorified, as he just said. And then he says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And so he says that that the creation itself is subjected to futility. It's cursed, but but it's not it's not a, a curse that will last forever. It's it's subjected to this futility in hope that the creation itself, this is verse 21, 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And I mean, that Romans 8.21 sums up pretty perfectly exactly what we're talking about here, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and it will obtain the same freedom that the children of God will obtain. So, so again, if, if Paul isn't talking about, some people argue, well, maybe he's talking about non-Christians. And to me, the only, the only way to interpret it that way would be to accept universalism, which I think the book of Romans itself would, would argue against, that he's not saying that all people, all humans will be uh, redeemed from their bondage to corruption, or that all humans will be glorified with Christ, or all humans will experience the same glory as the children of God. So if he's not talking about other humans, then he has to be talking about the creation itself. He says that right now, the creation is in bondage to corruption. And we can see that everywhere we look. Everything that is part of the creation is in bondage to corruption. Everything from the time it's born begins to break down and die. It's all decaying. It's all corrupted. It's all um, subject to the same death and decay. But he says that it's not that subject to death and decay isn't forever that there's a hope for the creation itself, that it will be set free from this bondage to corruption. He says in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And some people would stop me here and they say, well, Wes, wait, wait, wait. That, that's personification. You know, the creation doesn't groan. And it's like, well, yes, of course it's personification. And yes, of course it's a figure of speech. But sometimes we write things off as a figure of speech and we say, well, that's just figurative language. And it's like, well, but figurative language means something. If I say it's raining cats and dogs, that that means something. You don't just say, well, that's just a figure of speech. Well, of course it's a figure of speech, but it means that it's raining. And so if if Paul says the creation is groaning and waiting to be redeemed, and it's waiting to be redeemed with hope, and that at some point it will be set free from its bondage to corruption, then I have to believe that that Paul means exactly what he's saying, that there will come a time when the creation itself will experience the same redemption and glorification that we will experience with our bodies. And he says in verse 23, he says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. So our mortal bodies are going to experience the same redemption that the creation will experience. And the creation will experience the same redemption that our resurrected bodies will experience. Now, I can't help but think about that in terms of what our uh, brother talked about last time with Realize Eschatology, the idea that all of this is coming to bear. And I can see how someone could look at that through that preterist lens and say, well, that's speaking to whenever that you know, whenever Christ makes his ultimate return, which would happen shortly. And that's something that we'll talk about in this paradigm, you know, in just a little bit. But if that's the case and what Paul is saying there about the redemption of all creation and the release of creation from those bonds of corruption and decay and death, etc., it seems like that in and of itself, you, it'd be really hard to reconcile that viewpoint with that eschatological lens or that viewpoint, because 
the fact is, if Jesus did return and that was that ultimate fulfillment of everything that Paul is looking forward to with hope, well, then it stands to reason that that can't be the case because we still see death being present now. We still see decay being present now. We still see people dying and bodies being corrupted by disease and cellular degeneration. And over and over again, we see that still being present within creation. So to me, that presents a really compelling counterpoint to some of the points that were made concerning realized eschatology. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah, this this sounds like just a completely different paradigm. If if I'm not mistaken, you know this when, when you when you approach eschatology in the way that we discussed last week versus today, these are just two completely from top to bottom different frameworks. It would appear. Well, and I would say this: I would say that that preterism has in its favor the way that it it appear the way that it interprets passages like Matthew chapter 24. There there's so many passages of scripture especially in the gospel accounts, that I, I do think Jesus is talking about the day of judgment in 70 AD. And I do think 70 AD, I do think the destruction of Jerusalem was a day of judgment. But I think my personal opinion where preterism falls short is failing to see that there have been lots of days of judgment, that that there have been lots of period of periods of time throughout the prophetic days and and in and following the days of Jesus, when God has brought judgment upon a nation, upon a kingdom, upon a people group, and there has been a day of the Lord. And I think that what what I'm saying here and how it differs from preterism is that inaugurated eschatology says, yes, Jesus is king. Jesus has become king. The messianic age has begun but it hasn't reached its full fulfillment yet. And that those days of the Lord, those days where Jesus has come in judgment against Jerusalem or against Rome or against whatever, these are just precursors to the final judgment. Um, and and I, I think that, that where preterism is right is that it rightly interprets Jesus within the context of Jerusalem and the judgment that would be coming upon that generation. Where I think it overstates its case is that the people in Rome uh, wouldn't would certainly not have felt that the creation had been set free from its bondage to corruption because Jerusalem fell. There, this would not have had the sort of um, releasing and redemption of the entire cosmos the way Paul describes it in Romans eight. Um, the, the fall of Jerusalem would not have had that sort of significance for Christians living in Rome, uh, you know, in, 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 in their context. So I think that, that where preterism is right is it speaks to the context of Jesus in his personal ministry, but where it falls short is that it fails to see that the entire cosmos, the entire human race, the entire creation itself is longing for redemption. It's longing for the ultimate day of the Lord where all things are set free from its, their bondage to corruption and where sin and death are ultimately destroyed. Where's so that? with realize, oh, I'm sorry. Well, with realize eschatology, then you, you see the difference then, especially when you compare it to Romans 8, you have Paul looking forward to that day when ultimate judgment has been meted out because everything is still dying and decaying. So in light of Romans 8, there's some explaining that has to be done from that realize eschatology viewpoint. But yes. in this yeah. sense, in inaugurated eschatology, we see Paul looking forward with great hope to that day in which 
all of creation is redeemed from the corruptive power that came to be from the fall of man and whenever sin entered the world. And yeah. that that's really, really compelling. I really like it. And I had never considered Romans 8 within that context. So that's incredibly interesting to me. Yeah, so I've got I've got a few follow-up questions just so you could uh, kind of explain this in a little more detail because I think several of the points that you've brought out are, are just really strong and they're interesting to contemplate and a couple of things I've never even considered before. Uh, you know, you begin there talking about verse 18 of Romans 8 where Paul talks about the, the sufferings of this present time. And then he moves on talking about the creation. And then he moves on talking about even our own bodies in verse 23. And so this does seem to be a very physical discussion, <laughs> right? I mean, these yeah, are, yeah. these are, this, this, just reading this, and Lee and I both are honest to goodness neutral right now because we've just started studying in detail a lot of different views on eschatology. And so we really are open to hearing what different people have to say. But if, if I understand you correctly, your point is when you go to Romans 8, you, you don't just see some sort of future judgment against Israel bringing Jew and Gentile together. You see a future restoration of all things, including no more suffering, including the earth itself will no longer have problems, including our physical bodies itself will no longer have problems. All of these things will be completely physically restored. Is that correct? Yeah, and, and, and I would say that that I think that not only because of what Romans 8 says, but because of what Paul begins Romans by saying. Paul begins Romans by saying that the gospel has been proclaimed by all of the holy prophets. It's This is a message that all of the prophets proclaimed. And so if we look back at the prophets and we can't find the gospel, then we're probably misdefining gospel. And so Paul believed that the gospel, the good news of Jesus' reign, the good news of God's kingdom coming had been proclaimed by all of the prophets. And so when you look back at the prophets and you read what Isaiah said, when you read what Jeremiah said, when you read what all of these, these prophets said, it, it's striking just how physical it is. And we have had this tendency um, a lot of it's influenced by Greek philosophy, by Plato, um, and then later by the Gnostics, unfortunately. Um, we've had this tendency for the last 2,000 years to what I might call over-spiritualize or dematerialize uh, the scriptures. But when you look at the prophets, it was very much about inheriting the land. It was about, uh, I love Isaiah chapter 11 that talks about the, the Messiah bringing an age of peace and he says in verse nine, he says, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So, I mean, all, and all of the prophets talk that way, that, that the whole world will be filled with God's glory. And, and people, again, you know, say, well, that's just figurative language, Wes. And I want to say, of course, it's figurative, but, <laughs> but the earth is right there in the middle of it. Never once do we get the picture that during the Messiah's reign, the, the world will cease to exist or that, or that there won't really be a time of peace. There won't really be a time of harmony. It's just figurative. I mean, it would be really hard to me to imagine telling Christians in 90 AD or in you know, 110 AD and say, listen, 
this is the day that the that the prophets were looking forward to, a day of peace where the the wolf and the lamb lie down together. And they're like, well, we're still being crucified. We're still being thrown to the lions. We're still being killed. You know, how is this the age of peace where the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? How is this the fulfillment of everything that Isaiah said? And and I think that that where inaugurated eschatology where it holds those things in tension, where it says, was Jesus reigning as king in, you know, AD 60 or AD 70 or AD 90? Was Jesus reigning as king? Yes. And was it yet the fullness of what it will be? No, not yet. And it's still not yet because again, we still see death and destruction. We still see disease. We still see that sin and death still you know, still reign to some degree, and that we long for the day, just as Paul's describing in Romans 8, we long for the day when our bodies will be set free from that in the resurrection, but we also long for the day when God will redeem his good creation. Well, Wes, I've got I've got a, a point I want to make, and really, I guess, a confession, too, if that's okay. Can I make a confession, Lee, Wes? Is that all right with you guys? On well, air, here Bible. we go. We're well, going to make a confession. Well, but but we're not in front. The invitation song hasn't been sung yes. yet, Kevin. Wes, if you can say, please come while we stand and sing, and then everything will be okay. <laughs> okay, I, I so, on a Sunday. so I, I, I've got to be completely honest with you. I have the, the idea of being a disembodied spirit going to an eternal church service never has really been that appealing to me. I'm just going to, I'm just going to put it out there and just going to be completely yeah, honest yeah, with me. Yeah. Uh, you know, typically an hour is, is my max, you know what I'm saying? And so I'm thinking to myself, when we talk about this hope and even when I used to believe that of, okay, this is what's going to happen. You're going to die. You're going to be this disembodied spirit and God's all the, all of a sudden just going to make you like worshiping him, you know, at going to church 24 seven. And that's all you're going to be doing. You're going to be singing all the time. And, you know, I hear people kind of, like, oh, I just can't wait for that. I, oh, this is going to be wonderful. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, things may change from the time I, I'm living right now, the time I die and in, in eternity. But my goodness, that just doesn't really sound like heaven. And I'm not trying to be derogatory at all, but that almost seems to be more like our idea of what we think heaven's going to be based upon how we're currently doing church, based upon what the Bible actually describes heaven as being. And so this really changes heaven, right? I mean, this, this, in what you're saying, it kind of makes heaven a little bit more exciting. And that just may be my flesh coming out. But uh, after all, I am flesh. That's the way God created me. And so, (laughs) yeah, you're, you're, you're hitting on so many great points because I mean, we, we are physical beings. You know, it's funny, the, you know, the word flesh, Paul used the word flesh as a metaphor to talk about our weakness. You know, and, and he says in, in his chapter on resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he doesn't mean that you have to be non-material because a body is by its very definition material. That's what a body is. That's the difference between a disembodied spirit and, and, and a spirit that is embodied is that it's material. But what he says our body will not be is flesh and blood. It won't be natural. The word there that he uses um, you know, is often interpreted as, as natural. It won't be a natural body. It will be a spiritual body. And by spiritual, again, he doesn't mean non-material. He means 
empowered by the Spirit. He means from the Spirit. The Spirit will give us a new body. And this idea that that we're supposed to get okay with or be okay with a non-material existence, that again is Platonism. That's not Christianity. That's not something that ancient Jews believe. That's not most ancient Jews, I should say. It's not something that Second Temple Judaism taught. They always believed in a bodily resurrection. They believed in the inheritance of a new world. And Jesus and the apostles confirmed that belief. Jesus himself said in the Beatitudes that the meek will inherit the earth, you know? And I don't know what we think that means besides the meek will inherit the earth, but that's what he said, you know? And so, um, and, and again, I agree with you, Kevin. I think that it is much more exciting to think instead of floating on a cloud for eternity, which we didn't get from scripture. I don't know where we got that idea, but we didn't get it from scripture. Uh, every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings, and I guess right. so do we. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let me let me say one more thing, and I think Lee wants to jump in, too, with, with a couple of points uh, to ask you about, too. But I, I believe that uh, immortality is conditional. I believe that only uh, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ are granted immortality. And I think that that's the whole premise of 1 Corinthians 15. His point's not about what kind of body we're going to have. It's going to be that the new body is going to be immortal. And that's that's the whole case he makes. Uh, the latter part of 1 Corinthians 15 is that we now... Are, are no longer going to corrupt. We are going to be immortal beings. And some people believe that's going to be the way that God created Adam and Eve, um, whether you take that literally, Lee, but uh, whether you take that as parabolical. <laughs> but the whole idea is that uh, before sin entered the world, you know, this 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 is how God created things, to, to be physical, and that things are going to be restored back to that like it was in the Garden of Eden. And we even see that, in Revelation, where the tree of life is symbolically seen as being there as well. So do, do you want to get into Revelation a little bit? Because I know that that you believe there's some points there that you can couple with what you've said. Well, and Kevin, you just stole my thunder because I was going to say almost the exact same thing verbatim about 1 Corinthians 15. And I was going to ask just about the same exact thing with, with Revelation because you and I had alluded to that whenever we went over origins about how John borrows so heavily from the same type of imagery seen in the garden, seen in yeah. that account in Genesis. And Wes, I was wondering if you could elaborate on how that influences this, this viewpoint of inaugurated eschatology. Yeah, I think, I think Revelation spells out the entire picture so incredibly well, because it, it lays out exactly what's, you know, this, and again, figurative, of course it's figurative, but is it true? Yes, it's true. And so, I mean, it's it's full of figurative language, just as the prophets always were, but it describes the fact that currently there is a battle going on. And I don't know how, I, I just don't know how to reconcile our current reality with what we experience and and the idea that there there is no fulfillment yet to these promises that that we experience right now not only the the physical decay and and death but we also experience the struggle with sin we we experience the very real presence of satan in the world we experience the battles that revelation describes i do think that 
you know, John was giving this revelation for the people of his generation to encourage them that the battle is the Lord's and that the Lord will be victorious and he will give you victory over the forces of darkness. But that that same message is true even after Jerusalem fell, even after Rome fell, it, it continues to be true. It was true for Christians living in the shadow of Nazi Germany and every other evil empire that's ever existed or will ever exist. The book of Revelation encourages us that if we are faithful unto the point of death, he will give us the crown of life. And the story ends, and I don't think it's a mistake that our Bible ends with Revelation 20 and 21. And the picture of the very end is that death and sin are destroyed. And I, I cannot believe that that's something that has already happened. Death still is a reality. I can't stand at, at someone's you know um, funeral or I can't stand by somebody's bedside as they're passing away and pretend like death isn't still a reality. Sin and death are still real. And Revelation pictures sin and death being thrown into the lake of fire. And then as soon as sin and death are destroyed, then the city of God comes down out of heaven. The people don't go to heaven. The city of God comes down out of heaven and is revealed. And it's this wedding picture. And I think that it, it perfectly illustrates exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 1.10, that what Jesus is doing is reconciling everything in heaven and on earth. And so at the very climax of the entire scriptures, the climax of the book of Revelation is the city of God coming down out of heaven. And there is this, this wedding scene where Jesus, where the lamb is marrying together everything in heaven and on earth. He's reconciling the one who is 100% man and 100% God is marrying together heaven and earth, the city of God and the city of people and bringing them together. And Revelation 21 says and, and that the city is coming down out of heaven from God so that God can dwell with them. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's the story of scripture is God wants to dwell with us. And that's, that's exactly how Revelation ends is with God dwelling with us. Well, and I think it's really interesting to look at that and at the risk of making connections that may not be there. I mean, that almost brings to mind that that imagery that Paul paints or that that figurative sense that Paul paints about, you know, well, maybe not figurative, but Jesus being the first fruits of that resurrection, being 100% divine, 100% human. And that picture through the lens of inaugurated eschatology, you have Jesus bringing all of that, which is spiritual down to our level and remaking everything within that image of 100% divine and 100% still physical in that sense, but, but purging out all of that, which is corrupted. Now, it seems to me that there are some that would say that, well, that's certainly the case, but that takes place in a spiritual sense. Whenever we are raised to walk in a newness of life upon our obedience to the gospel at that point, you know, spiritual death has been purged from our lives. And if we are faithful unto death and we receive that crown of life, how would you respond to that kind of line of reasoning that that spiritualizes that idea and says, well, that's that's speaking of our redemption upon this earth and upon this plane. Yeah, I, I again, I think that 
when I sat down, and all I could say is, is from my own personal experience, as I sat down and read through scripture, if when I sat down with Genesis and I read from the beginning to the end, it occurred to me that if this is a book about how to go to heaven when you die, then somebody should have told Moses that, you know, because you don't, <laughs> you, you don't get that impression. You know, that's if this yeah. is the introduction to a book about how to go to heaven when you die, then nobody told any of the authors, especially from Genesis to Malachi, nobody told any of the Hebrew authors that, that this is what this book is about. There's nothing that gives you the impression. Nowhere do we even see that idea of spiritual death. We've just, we've just taken these very tangible ideas, these things that are very experiential, that, that everybody knows Everybody knows that they're going to die. This is a very real experience that the entire human race is aware of. And, and when we tell them, listen, Jesus has come so that you can live forever, we don't have to, quote unquote, spiritualize it. It's very, we, we literally mean that. We literally mean that Jesus came. He lived. He died, not a spiritual death. He died on a cross. And he was raised from the dead, not spiritually, but bodily. He was raised from the dead so that you too can be bodily raised from the dead and made immortal so that you never die. He's going to destroy death. These things are much easier to understand than sort of the, again, what I would call the platonic way that we've, we've changed it to be very spiritualized. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's very easy to understand that when we say Jesus came to save you from death, we, we mean it just as it sounds, because that's exactly the story that we see. Um, and, and it goes all the way back to, to the garden. Again, the earth, life, death, uh, creation, all of these things are, are very you know, much a part of the story. This is not a story about how disembodied spirits go to heaven. You know, in fact, um, I love the fact that the Hebrew word for soul uh, in the creation account, it says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. The word is nefesh in the Hebrew. Nefesh is what we typically translate it as soul, but it just means a being. You know, Adam didn't become a disembodied spirit. A soul <laughs> A soul is a living creature. And the way we typically, the only way we typically use the word soul in a biblical way is when we say about like an airplane, that an airplane went down and there were 37 souls on board. We don't mean there were 37 disembodied spirits on board. We mean there were 37 living beings on board. And so when the Bible talks about a soul, it's talking about a, a human being in body and spirit. It, this is this is a embodied human, embodied life, an embodied being. And Jesus comes to save our being from death. Not not just our body. He's going to raise, or not just our spirit, but he's going to raise our body as well, and it's going to be transformed. And so this was always a part of Jewish eschatology. And it was always a part of early Christian eschatology, the resurrection and the world to come. Uh, but, but somehow along the way, we, we sort of spiritualized everything and made it about going to an ethereal place and having an ethereal existence. And, and it's just never what the Bible was intended to be about. 
Well, and you you put that really, really well, especially in terms of Romans 8 and tying that to Revelation 20 and 21 and looking at how all of that works together. And I, I think Kevin wants to wants to address part of this because that tends to also be the lens through which one could view what Jesus said whenever he went through his Beatitudes and he was talking about those who would inherit the earth there in Matthew. And you had mentioned this earlier, Wes, talking about the idea of the land and inheriting the land, or it may have been Kevin that mentioned it, but I know Kevin had something he wanted to chime in on that. Well, yeah, well, you you had mentioned that earlier, Wes, just in passing. And the more I'm listening to what you're saying I think it's interesting because you can kind of build up a a whole narrative case in favor of your of your belief because if you look at Matthew 5 5, you had brought up blessed are those who inherit the earth. And then you look at the Old Testament, which we all would agree that the Old Testament has a lot of of types and shadows in it, and the New Testament is a fulfillment of those things. And you're exactly right. The land was a big deal in the Old Testament. I mean, that's that is what we constantly see throughout is going after that land, getting that land, living in that land, being settled in that land and the promised land. And if you parallel that and say that the fulfillment of that today is going to be some sort of spiritual realm, it really doesn't make much sense, but it makes a lot more sense when we we can parallel that with what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 5, and that is everything is going to be restored. You know, when, when, when we see in Genesis, God said that everything he created was very good. Why would he light all that on fire? Why, yeah. why would, why would he, he just destroy all that? Uh, and so the fact that he is redeeming all of his creation, not just the, the humans, not just the actual people, but also the whole creation, because after all, he is the author. He is the one who created everything. He's the author. He's the creator. And so I, I see what you're saying. It, it makes a lot of sense from start to finish to look at it and say, OK, look, the land has always played an important part. God is seen as creating us as physical beings. Uh, before sin entered the world, it was a physical world. They did physical things. And now in the future, what is what's going to happen? Well, we're going to be restored physically. And also the whole earth itself is going to be restored physically. And then a side point that this may or may not have much to do with what you're saying, but it did get me to think about something. Back years ago, I wish it was further, but years ago when I was the the mean, dogmatic, ugly, jerkish jerkish preacher that I was, I would oftentimes talk about saving souls. And, you know, I would quote Matthew 16, 26, you know, what profit is a man if he gains the world, lose his own soul. And I would talk about how we need to love souls and all this kind of, and and what it was doing is it was distancing from the actual person. Instead of loving the person, I was loving their soul. I was loving that gooky disembodied part of them that would live on forever and instead of actually loving the person, you know, Jesus didn't. And, and I think that's what you hit on. And I, I do agree completely with what you said, because the idea of body soul separation, you know, the idea that God is just concerned about our souls and not concerned about our bodies. You know, we just don't see that in Scripture. We, we, we see that when the Bible talks about the soul it's not talking about the disembodied spirit in exclusion to the body. It's just another way of saying the totality 
of the individual. And so when you're talking about the body or the soul or the mind or any of those things, you're just talking about the totality of the individual. And we've tried to really separate that. And in doing so, we've really been able to dehumanize people we disagree with or those that we think need to be saved because we we go after their souls. We don't really care about them as people. We go after their souls. And I don't know if that plays much into what you're talking about, but it it really, to me, just brought up that idea of how when we try to differentiate between the soul and the person, we end up not really caring much about the person anymore. Yes, I, I, and I think that that hits on a really important part of this discussion, and that's what difference does it make? Because every time I have this conversation with people, we get to this point where people are like, yeah, I see what you're saying, but what difference does it make? What practical, you know, it doesn't matter what I think about the end, or we're just going to wait till Jesus comes and then we'll figure it out, or we'll die and, and then we'll figure out what, what's going to happen next. It really doesn't matter which version of the story we embrace. And I think it does matter. You know, not again, it doesn't matter. I don't think somebody's saved or lost based on what they believe on this, but I definitely believe that it matters that we over-spiritualize things because as you said, Jesus commands us, Jesus teaches us, Jesus examples for us loving whole people, not just caring about where they spend eternity, but caring about caring about filling their stomach when they're hungry, caring about putting a coat on their back when they're when they're naked, caring about putting a roof over their head when they're homeless. Jesus cares about whole people and the scriptures always teach that. And so this over-spiritualization of things or this prioritizing the quote-unquote spiritual over the material has caused all kinds of atrocities in Christian history where we can enslave people as long as we teach them the gospel or we can ignore their physical needs as long as we teach them the gospel. And, and I would say this is a gospel that's very different than the one we find in scripture. The one we find in scripture is about God beginning to reign through Jesus even right now, even as the age of sin and death is still in existence, Jesus is reigning as king. And because Jesus is reigning as king, it calls me to not only pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but also to live that out and to care about people, to care about people's whole being because God cares about our whole being. And I think that that's a beautiful way to to relate this idea of the new heavens and the new earth view with the reality of what it means to serve God on a day-to-day basis. Because one of the things that Kevin and I have talked about, and we've, we've touched on it here and there in this podcast and in different topics and in different ways, this idea of looking at the Bible through a different lens, looking at the Bible through a better lens than one that relegates the scriptures to a rule book or case law that we need to decipher in order to know what all the right things are that we need to do so that God's happy. Happy. And, you know, we, we have this idea and we're going to get into in, in some future episode, the concept of pattern theology and finding that pattern. And one of the things that I have come to realize and where I am, spoiler alert, is that Jesus is that pattern that we are to follow. And whenever you look at Jesus as that pattern, just like you said, you put it so beautifully, he cared about the whole person. He cared about people and their plight on this earth while looking forward to saving their souls, so to speak, you know, his, his desire was for the totality of who that person was as an individual for the physical plight that they faced and for the reality of 
their situation in the here and now. And whenever we look at scripture through the lens of Jesus, how does this point us forward to Jesus? How does Genesis tell us how to go to heaven? How does the prophet Isaiah tell us how to go to heaven? And like you said earlier, if we look at all of those things and if they're not pointing to Jesus or we don't draw Jesus out of that, then there may be something awry with the framework through which we're approaching the scripture. And this idea of an inaugurated eschatology where the new heavens and new earth are going to be created, that seems, at least from where I'm sitting now, to be a really Christocentric way of approaching the eschatological question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that it it begins with Jesus and it says that new creation has already started, that Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation. And then each of us, as we have been baptized into Jesus, we have been reborn. And Paul says that if you're in Christ, you are already new creation. So Jesus redeeming creation has already begun. It began It began in, at his resurrection. And then it begins with each of us. As we put Jesus on at baptism, we are reborn and we become part of the new creation. And eventually the entire creation will be made new. And that's what, what John says in Revelation. He's making all things new. This is what the Lord says. He's making all things new. And so it does. It, it, it's a holistic theology and a holistic eschatology that says everything, everything is changed. Everything is touched by the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. When Jesus was raised from the dead, everything was it was beginning to be made new, beginning with him and then extending to every single one of us and eventually will redeem the entire creation. That's awesome. Well, I think that our time that we had allotted for this part of the conversation is pretty much, it's, we're pretty well getting close to the end of that. So are there any other comments that you want to make before we close out this session? Um, Anything else that you'd like to add to it or cover that we haven't yet covered? I I, I will say, because I, I know when I say all of this, people think, well, are you saying that, you know, Jesus is going to come down to modern day Jerusalem? You know, and, and I think I would say to people the same thing that the Hebrew writer said, we're not looking to the Jerusalem that is, we're looking to the new Jerusalem. And the way the Hebrew writer puts it is that that Jerusalem, the city of God that will be, everything that will be is still right now hidden in heaven. Heaven is the unseen realm. And at the return of Christ, it will be revealed. And none of what will be has yet been revealed. Just like our new bodies, they haven't yet been revealed. But when he appears, and that's how the New Testament talks about it, you know, then then it will be made known. And so I don't want somebody to think that what I'm talking about is anything like premillennialism, where Jesus is going to come down and reign in, in modern day Jerusalem or something like that. But what we are saying is that the city of God isn't this ethereal place, but a, a very real place that will be revealed. It will be made known. It will appear on that last day. That's fantastic. Well, Wes, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us to have this conversation. We have more that we're going to talk about. So those of you that are listening, we thank you all very much. And if you want to hear more of this conversation, tune in next week because we will bring this conversation to a close then. As always, thank you all for your patronage. Thank you for listening. Please like our Facebook group, like this podcast, follow it, give us that five-star review, share it with your friends, help us grow our audience so that we can move together and move forward as we explore faith and pursue grace.